Welcome to Let's Unpack That. I'm Liana. I'm Brianna. I'm Chuck. And we're your friends navigating this complicated, messy, painful, and beautiful experience of life with you through human story and connection, starting with our own. You're safe here and we see you. So, let's unpack that. Okay, welcome to the next episode of Les Unpack That. We have our guest with us, Dr. Lisa Diamond. Um, she teaches at the U and uh, wrote this book titled Sexual Fluidity, which is actually a book that I came across um, very early into trying to grapple with my identity and figure out the dynamics of a really complex friendship, more than a friendship situation that I was existing in at that time. Um, so this felt like a lifeline for me once I picked up the book and started trying to understand what I thought I knew about myself and friendship and like, uh, just sexuality in general. So, um, I guess I'll turn it over to you. I've read through the book. My co-hosts have also read through the text. Um, but can you tell our listeners a little bit about your research and the work that you do? Sure. So that book came out in 2008 and that was the the culmination of about 10 years of research on one group of women. And it's sort of interesting to me because I've continued to follow them. And so everyone's like, oh, that book. And I'm like, oh, no, like, it's not over. Like, I'm still like, you know. And, yeah. and uh, they are, they're, all of their stories and all of their journeys are still kind of going on. Like, they weren't all frozen in time in 2008. But at that time, you know, what I was really trying to do with the book was to put out to a more general audience just how much diversity in people's trajectories through sexuality and gender are. Uh, you know, when I first started graduate school in the the early 1990s, it was a very... Uh, the ideas about sexual orientation were very rigid. It was like, there's gay people, and you know, and now we've learned that they're not bad people. They're just a little <laughs> different than the rest of us. But it was still this really, really kind of, there's one way to be gay, and there's one kind of journey. And uh, and I just knew from the, you know, the, the people I came out with, you know, when I was in college in Chicago, and just the people I'd met, that people had really different pathways and that was what I really wanted to study because there wasn't that much work on women at that time and so what really kind of emerged from that work was just if you follow actual people over time and you follow what paths their life actually takes and not what they tell you selectively when you talk to them 10 years later and they say oh I always knew this and it's like no people have really unpredictable journeys and it's like going like river rafting and one relationship would reset the trajectory for the next couple of years and then another wave and so it it wasn't this like oh I was always meant to be exactly where I am there was this you know sense of of self-exploration and empowerment and and people really charting their own path. And although now it's kind of funny because now people are like, 
oh, there was no sex. Everything is fluid and all that. And I'm like, yeah, that was not what everybody was thinking back in the early 2000s. And the thing that really struck me about so many of the women I talked to was that they all felt that there was something kind of weird about them. And there were some women who were like, it's okay if you want to take me out of your study because I think I might be a bad example of a lesbian. And I'm like, well, apparently so is everybody else. Right. So <laughs> as far as I know, I think it's, it's just fine. But it just seemed that people were suffering from comparing themselves to something they thought was a norm. And what is so ironic about that is, you know, when you come out, you, that is a process of saying, hey, I don't have to be what I thought I was supposed to be. Maybe I'm not that. You know, and so we're really good. Our community is really good about supporting one another when we say, "Oh, you're realizing you're not heterosexual. Welcome to the world of other people who aren't that way too." But we're we have not been historically as good at saying, "Wow, your journey here was a little bit different than mine. Mm-hmm. It is no less valid." And and so we sort of prioritize this: you come out, and then you're done, and you ride off into the sunset with your girlfriend. And yet life is just way more complicated than that. And so my, my main goal in writing the book was just to put that diversity out there uh, because it was so clear to me that everyone was suffering just as much from restrictive notions of what it meant to be queer as we had all been suffering from in terms of restricted notions of what it just meant to be a person or a human or a sexual being. And, you know, it's like what we know now is there is no form of shame that isn't toxic. You know, the shame that lesbians would put on bisexual women was toxic. The shame that some bisexual women put on other bisexual women who are polyamorous is toxic. It's amazing how many marginalized groups continue to somehow get a feeling of safety by excluding somebody else. It's, it's maybe this really kind of primitive way of functioning. It's like, I finally know who I am, and I'm going to prove to myself that I'm okay by differentiating myself from, from you, you know? And it never works, and it is a tale as old as time. You see it in every social justice movement. That's what is behind colorism, you know, in the African-American community, it's every group that has ever been pushed out and felt on the outside sometimes tries to hang on to a feeling of inclusion by excluding somebody else. Yeah. And it's like, it's such a, like, primitive, second-grade tendency. I'm not going to play with you anymore. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. And we just have to call ourselves out whenever we do that and say what 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 am I not getting or not feeling that I feel like I'll get it by saying well that's that's not a real bisexual like Mm -hmm. I don't know I think she's just you know having a thing what are we what are we trying to feel when we do that to each other and usually we're trying to feel safe or what do you gain from from doing that yeah Yeah, we were just talking about that before you got here too because It's it's interesting that it does feel like I know for myself for a long time I would say, well it's about the connection. It, if I found that connection with a man, I I would totally be with him, right? And now where I'm sitting, and there's nothing wrong with that. But now where I'm sitting, I'm recognizing that that's not actually the case for me. I am 
just where I sit more attracted to women based on all the experiences that I've had in my life. And so it's a tricky line to parse because there is a lot of othering of like the bisexual community because of that. And the truth is that, you know, all people go through stages of their life where certain stories that they tell themselves about themselves are the ones that that work for them in that moment. And I think one of the things that I've become more sort of aware of just through the process of aging <laughs> is that if someone begins with a story of it's really this connection, it's not women in general, it's just a connection, there's really no way to know at that moment whether that is a true story or a fault. There, I mean, it's some of the women I followed that ended up always being true for them, that they were always more about the person than the gender. The other folks who were more like your story when they're like, you know, that's what I was thinking at that time. I think that might not have been true. There is no way to tell at any moment which one of those pathways is true. And, it, and, and even that word, true, doesn't make sense. There is no, there is no objective like thing that you can push and pull and say, well, that's, you know, that's what's really going on in your brain. We grow and we develop and we change and we try to make sense of what we're going through. And it may be that the only way you could have arrived at a way to make sense of your feelings and say, I think that this is a stable part of me. It may be that there was no way to arrive at that meaning without going through a previous meaning and trying that on and saying, is this true of me or is it not? And no one can speed up anybody else's, you know, development. And, and I've had people say to me, well, what do I say to a friend who's like, oh, it's just this, and I really think they're gay, and I want to be supportive. And I'm like, then if you really want to be supportive, then you just say the three magic words, tell me more. Yeah. Tell me more mm -hmm. about what you're experiencing. You don't know the answer. You have a lot of opinions. I bet they have a lot of opinions about you, too. I bet you don't want to hear all those either, <laughs> yeah. right? That, that just because we share something with someone's experience or we're queer or we have an investment, we just don't know. And what we can do is invite the other person to go on their own journey and say, I am here to listen to anything you want to talk about, and I will not give you advice because who the hell knows? And any part of your experience you want to talk through or bounce off of me, I'm always here for you. Tell me more. Tell me more. What does it feel like? What are you thinking? We just don't know. We just don't know. And there's so many more sort of pockets of diversity than we even realize. You know, a lot of what I've been doing work on recently is early trauma and the, the lasting legacy of so many different forms of trauma and childhood adversity. And they do such a number on the way your brain processes information and feels feelings that oftentimes when I think people within, you know, queer communities are like, oh, that's inauthentic. I'm like, you know, there is just so much variation in how our brains and bodies deal with information because of what we experience as children. And so we just need to just get rid of these judgments about what you know, what is authentic or what is real or what is not because our, you know, the queer community has almost double 
the rates of early childhood trauma and adversity mm-hmm. as the rest of the population. And it's even worse for queer people of color. And, and that adversity runs the gamut from financial hardship to parental instability to parental mental illness, parental incarceration, physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse. Um, those forms of adversity, which we now know just literally rewire a kid's brain, are almost twice as likely in our community. So we have people who don't feel their feelings the way we might feel our feelings, who literally do not feel them the same way, and who who interpret facial expressions differently. We know that one of the things that trauma does is, you know, you are slower to see a smile and you're faster to see anger. And that's at the millisecond level in your brain. And so we walk around with this assumption that we're all talking about the same thing and reading the same articles and talking about the same issues. No, every single brain is so different that we don't know what other people are feeling. And so we need to... The, again, the only solution, invite more information. Tell me more. Tell me more. I don't know what your experience is like, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I, I want to I wanna embrace it. I want to hear about it. I want, you know, if you choose to let me in, I come in with no judgment. And that's the way to be a friend. And that's the way to be a family member mm-hmm. is to resist that impulse to say, well, I should, shouldn't you, should. it's like their brain. Who knows? Yeah. You know, you stick to your brain and... <laughs> Right. And don't put all that judgment. And and many people have to go through lots of different sub movements in their journey to arrive at a, a place of peace. You know, and that can often involve finding the right person, the right partner, so that they don't just repeat a bad pattern with a partner with a different gender. It's like, <laughs> oh, I'm done with that. Oh, I keep picking abusive partners. It doesn't actually matter whether they're, you know, their gender, if I'm drawn to a certain dynamic. So often people have to go through enough time in their life to figure out which themes in their life and their impulses and their responses, which of those are more stable or which of them change. And you know, I have such a different perspective on all of this now that I'm 51 than I did, you know, back in the past when I was writing. I like, I'm like, oh, you know, things are complicated. I was like, little do you know, complicated. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, when it's not just sexuality, it's not just gender, it's just everything you think about yourself is probably completely screwed up. Yeah, that's been something that's been super fascinating for me as a over the last, it's really been the last two years that this exploration of unpacking my identity through the catalyst of my sexuality, like has honestly exploded everything for me, including going back to- Because once you ask yourself a question that deep, yeah, like then it's like, what else? Oh yeah. Have Mm -hmm. I been assuming Mm -hmm. that is just a universal truth Yeah, that you've stopped even asking yourself? And so, you know, that's one of the reasons why uh, a lot of the people who sort of started the modern kind of uh, polyamory movement or, you know, uh, non- consensual non-monogamy, a lot of them were queer because, like, they were the ones who were like, well, wait a second. Once I, once I questioned heterosexuality, what is this monogamy thing? Like, is that just an idea too? Yeah. And what about, like, what's the nature of gender? Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Right? So once you open up that, you crack that open, 
then it's like if you've committed to asking yourself hard questions, there's a lot more hard questions. Oh my God, it's so true. And it's a little bit terrifying, which is why I think the judgment piece comes in, right? Because we want to know things. And so if everybody else is just as unpredictable as like we are, it kind of hits on trust issues, which full disclosure, I'm working on. <laughs> it's hard. I mean, I think anyone who has lived with any sort of stigma, that it's all about trust. It's because you cannot take your inclusion and safety for granted. And so everyone is like, hmm, are they on my side or are they not? Like, Yeah, are they, they safe like? or not? Yeah, yeah, and you're listening for what they say and you're like, you know, your brain is like a computer. Safe or not safe? Safe yeah. or not safe? And oftentimes, I think one of the downsides of the fact that there's been an, a lot of increased ex- acceptance of um, queer things is that it's easier for people who hate you to hide it, yeah. <laughs> right? And yeah. so that leaves you even less trustworthy. It's like, are you really uh, safe or do you know the right thing to say so that no one else calls you a homophobe, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Are you just really good at seeming okay, but Almost as soon as I leave the room... Niceness. But you can usually but you feel can that. Feel it. I can you can feel, feel the that. difference. I, I, but, I, but again, I guess the legacy is that even when you don't feel it, you think, well, you might be wrong. Yeah. You, you might be wrong. So like, it's comforting when you're like, oh yeah, I know not to trust them. The scary mm-hmm. thing is when you find someone you think you can trust and you're like, is this smart? Hmm. Yeah. Whew. Well, and I think it's interesting how it's all tied into the childhood trauma and the way your brain is formed because that has been a big path that I've found myself going down, especially over the last six months. It's made me deconstruct my family dynamics because all of that was thrown into huge upheaval when my family found out that I was dating a woman for the first time. And it made me have to go back. And I want to be really careful not to fall into what you're saying where I then reinflect everything that I've known about my childhood and my existence and the way that I grew up with now this new lens that I have over top, right? I don't want to rewrite it as all super negative or having like, I mean, it had its negatives, but it also had its positives. I mean, one of the things that I would say to that, and I, you know, I almost feel like I should say this is an advertisement for my own therapist who's really good about things like this. But I think any decent therapist would say this is go ahead and make the meaning you need to make without being attached to whether it's totally true. Like, or maybe this was what was going on. Human beings, and this part is, more my evolutionary psychology hat, human beings are meaning-making creatures by nature. We have, if someone says, you don't have to understand it, just accept it. Human brain is not designed to work that way. We strive to make a coherent story about how we got here. And that is part of, you know, part of of what makes, you know, being a human being great is to be able to reflect on something and say, that means something different to me now than it did then. And so don't be afraid of the meaning that you're making changing. Mm -hmm. Interesting. That that, when that changes, when you say, oh, I thought it was like this. Wait a second. Maybe it was a little bit abusive. Like when you have those shifts... You don't have to come to some universal ledger and say, I would like to change the status of that experience from 
okay to not okay. There is no there there is no ledger. There is no sequence of events that anybody would would choose to believe are true or not true. This happened, and how, you have a life with a lot of complex experiences, and a lot of their effect on your brain and body is not detectable in any conscious way at the time. A lot of memories, you know that that. I want to call them, you know, are or you know related to trauma. Yeah. They are not explicit verbal memories. There's memories of how it feels mm-hmm. to be in certain places, and they're body memories. And so, when we are trying to look back at our past and say, "Well, I was feeling that I was in this relationship, and then it felt this way. So, what was that? Was that this?" But there is no truth that you're going to get back to. You can't just dig through your memory hole and find like, "Ah, oh, here it is. It's the magic bean." Yeah. You are trying to put words to a whole bunch of somatic feelings Mm -hmm. that were in your body then that are in your body now. And so that's almost like you're using oranges to tell a story about apples. The body is not linear and it's not, you know, and all we can really do is capture and listen to big, strong impulses that we have, like sexual desire for a woman, and say, <laughs> oh my God, that's actually happening. What do I, like, what, you know, do I want to do about that? But that is a very different experience than what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Like, what does that mean for my future? What does it mean for my past? And so we have to just remember that that whole narrative sense-making thing is a critical part of well-being even if it's not very related to anything that anyone would say was true. That doesn't matter. The past is the past. What helps you be happy and fulfilled and authentic now is being able to make sense of now Mm -hmm. with whatever information from the past you find useful. Mm -hmm. And not all of it will be useful. And so if the meaning changes, it shouldn't be a surprise because guess what? You're changing same time right which means you're growing which means you're growing and so the idea that the memories that you have of your first high school boyfriend at 30 by the time you're 50 or 60 you are not the same 30 year old having those memories Mm -hmm. you have other experiences that help you connect to what it felt like to be intimate or what it felt like all those things are gonna you're not just going to have a different interpretation of them. They're going to feel different because you are different and your brain and body is different. So when people are like, oh, my God, I used to tell my – and I, I found this in my own data. I had people tell their coming out story or when they first became aware of their first feelings for women. And so I did this in the first interview, and then I did it again You know, at the next, I think, four interviews, and they were all about two years apart. And I sat down, and like the stories don't stay the same. Even when they're like, oh, there was the thing at camp. But then the sequence of events that they told me about what happened at camp is different. Interesting. Right? And, nice. and it was a really, really common, you know, experience. And I was like, what, you know, does this mean? And I was really fortunate that uh, also at the University of Utah, my colleague, Manisha Pashupathi, who was hired the same year I was hired, does all this work on autobiographical narrative and autobiographical storytelling. And her research shows that we create our stories about ourselves by telling them. 
they they don't have the same meaning if it's in your brain as when you say to someone else, I think this was what was going on or this is how I felt. And so the process of those stories changing is absolutely linked to the fact that you can't create yourself without engaging with others. Mm -hmm. That story becomes an interpersonal story uh, and especially coming out stories. There's, there's stories told to other people to connect with them or to make it clear why we're different from them. And so we're co-creating ourselves every time we talk about it. And so of course, as like 10 years down the line, that has a different meaning. The, the memories are different because it's informed by everything else that's, that is also making you who you are. And so we just, we sort of treat the brain, you know, we're like, oh, it's like a little memory chip. There's what happened that summer, and I can tell people that story, and it's like, no, that's not really how it works, mm -hmm. you know? And even if you had a camera on what happened that summer, that still wouldn't help you because we experience the world, you know, in our own way. What you felt, your body's memory of a certain relationship and a certain time in your life those, their reality at this point in your life is wholly in your somatic physiology. Mm -hmm. There is no existence to that event that you can hold outside of your body. It lives in your neurons, it lives in your perceptions, and it lives in your feelings. And we can narrate some of that mm -hmm. with like explicit memory. This is what happened. Mm -hmm. But we're terrible at that deeper somatic what did it feel like to be this close to that person? What did intimacy feel like? You know, what does safety feel like? Yeah. You know, those are like, we don't even have the right words yeah. to ask about it. You know, I'm, I'm struggling with this right now because I'm about to do this big survey of social safety and where people find, where people find themselves feeling that they can just let down the guard, be totally authentic, and, and the way we've described it in the past to participants is, you know, we're defining safe as, you know, feeling so secure that you are not devoting any thought or attention to how other people are perceiving and treating you. You're just your authentic self. And, and that ends up as, you know, seems likely to be really important <laughs> to well-being. <laughs> Safety is good. It is good to feel safe. <laughs> so now we're trying to come up with a broader range of questions to pinpoint. well, why do certain spaces end up feeling safer than others? What are the, what are the specific things that people are noticing? Is it how self-conscious they are? Is it how kind of alert, like, what is it? And the problem is that, like, all of the nice explicit words that we use, that are the words that we use to explain ourselves, they do just as bad a job of, speaking to research participants as they do of like speaking to ourselves. And so I'm like, you know, that feeling, that feeling you get when you're okay. And I'm like, oh my God, like I have to find a way to put words to it. But it just always reminds me, these things aren't really verbal. They're pre-verbal. Mm -hmm. You know, the very first experience we have of safety mm -hmm. is being held as baby, right? We come out okay. screaming, mm -hmm. right? The baseline state for humans is screaming. And someone picks us up and the body contact says, you're protected, you're not alone, you're connected, you're safe. That is our, that's what we internalize. And there's different 
physical cues, visual cues that can sometimes make us feel safe. Going in, you know, going to a room with, filled with people who love you, or they're like, hi. Going into a queer center being like, these people are my people. There's a whole bunch of things that can give you that feeling, but it's really hard to describe what that feeling is. It's kind of, you know it when you have it, and you know it when you don't, but it's hard to kind of, kind of pull at the particulars. That's well, and interesting. I like that. Yeah. And I think that's interesting to put into conversation with trauma and history of trauma, right? Because People sometimes with of trauma need more safety to feel it at all. Right. Need more Their safety. threshold is different. And what we often do to traumatize people is we're like, why are you so oversensitive? You know, does everything... A person who's been exposed to trauma, their brain is wired to just, they had to be hypervigilant. More, more yeah. vigilant. And it's like, sorry, the, the human brain evolved to take adversity in childhood as a sign of bad things to come. And so if you have survived your childhood and you're not dead, then basically your brain's like, whatever we are doing is working. She's alive. So let's still fear everything because it's working great. Yeah. Right? And again, those are not explicit things. Those are visceral. It's not that you're like, that doesn't seem safe. It's that certain things will, will trigger that nervous system memory that's in your body and you cannot talk your way out of those feelings and so again I feel like we we tell people who've experienced stigma that it's in their head we tell people who have experienced trauma that it's time for them to get over it and you know we tell people within the community that there's one right way to be and all of that is you know I think suggests that we have failed to really understand what true diversity and true inclusion is. Because it, when it's real, it is unconditional. Mm-hmm. And that is the difference between the safety you experience as a baby in your mother's arms and the safety you may or may not experience in your family now. Mm-hmm. When you're a baby, it's unconditional. You, it is your birthright simply because you are a human. No one asks what type of human you are. The moment it becomes conditional, and when, you know, like this is where I see it a lot, parents are like, well, you know, I still love you, but I cannot abide this thing you're doing. Okay, so your love is conditional. You're let's tolerating. Just, let's just, like, you know, call it for what it is. There's nothing wrong with conditional love. A lot of people experience it, but you as a parent have to understand that at that moment, you stopped being a safe parent. Mm-hmm. That there's a difference between safety and love, and there's a difference between safety and support. And I think many parents would, would raise their hands and say, I would like to be a supportive but not safe parent because I cannot condone this. And I would just say, as long as everybody can be totally transparent about that, fine. Mm-hmm. Then the job is to get that kid someone who can be a parent-like figure. Like, let's be clear. Are you guys able to do it? You know, are you able to actually say, I am ride or die with you. You're my child. And like you, I like literally, you know, I don't care. Mm-hmm. And, and I try to, you know, talk to parents about how that you can say that and still say, 
I don't understand anything you're doing and it makes me angry and it makes me want to cry at night, but like, am I ride or die with you? Yeah, still am. Very sad, very confused. I'm going to go to therapy. Like, you don't lose the ability to disagree, but it is so important to first send the signal to that person that all you need to be to be with me is just who you are. And that, it's amazing how many queer and just people on the whole spectrum internalized from a very early age that who they are is not enough. Mm-hmm. It's either not enough or too much, but something is needs to be fixed. And what is interesting about that is, you know, uh, in addition to, you know, the, the, a lot of the queer folks or people on the spectrum who have not had, you know, early trauma in childhood, they often, if they start to become aware of their sexuality or gender identity in high school, they just internalize that judgment, just knowing like, oh, no, like, is that what I am? I am in trouble. And so that internalized shame does the same thing that trauma does. Something about you is not acceptable, not enough. And that feeling is just, that is, that is unsafety personified. That you alone, just existing, is not worth other people. Like, you know, you're now an untouchable. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed uh, that people have a particular story where they recognized this is when I I know that this is not okay or this is unsafe because I have a story like that. I would love to, can you tell that story? So when I was, I was probably eight and I went to my aunt's dance recital and it was a cowboy cowgirl dance and she got to dance with this really cute cowgirl. And after the dance, I were surrounded by like our family And I remember saying to her, you are so lucky you got to dance with that girl. She's so pretty. And it was crickets. And everyone kind of looked at me like, Mm. and I remember being like, I don't know if that's safe. Like, that's okay to say. I don't, I don't know if I can say that about a girl. And that was the first moment it stuck in my head. First moment I knew. And you know, what's so powerful about that example, you know, is that public shame is one of the most powerful like memory enhancers for the human brain because we evolved to sort of to have our brains be really really plastic in the early years because humans lived in so many different types of habitats Mm -hmm. and ecologies so the job of the human brain in the first two years of life is figure out what everybody else thinks is important and literally, the, you know, Japanese babies stop hearing the distinction between the L sound and the R sound because it's irrelevant to Japanese. That's why many of them can't, they'll be like, they sound. So your brain literally is like, this is important, this is important, the rest I can let die away. So you figure out the, the you know, your brain is wired to look at expressions of approval and disapproval from the people around you as a way to get yourself socialized and it's like our brains are like okay what are the rules what are the rules here and shame is how you learn the rules because when you overstep and you get that blanket of hot shame mm-hmm. your body is basically like remember this don't ever do that again 
So those memories are different from memories of, you know, eating a hot dog that, you know, uh, was spoiled or that shame memories, public shame. That is some of like the most deep because our brains evolved to actually say, that's what you should pay attention to more than anything, you know? So we remember those moments. In your research, um, did you have like, I guess like heterosexual people versus queer people that you talked to. And did you notice that the queer people experienced more shame moments like that? You know, even there, there was a lot of slipperiness and craziness. So the, the, the makeup of my sample was also completely strange. It was just out of sheer desperation. This was before the internet. I just had to go Mm -hmm. to like parades and parks and (laughs) I love that though. It it was like the old days. I would just like walk up to them. I'm like, I'm doing this study. I don't have any money. I you know. Do you just want to talk to me about your sexual identity? <laughs> but at that time, I'm safe. There, there was no. The thing is, I was. I was. You know, very close in age. Mm-hmm. I was. You know, this was 1995 when I started, and um, and I was born in 71. So I was. I can't. I can't even figure out. But I was close in age. You know, I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. So I was close in age, and I was. And I was you know, openly out to them because I felt it was important for them to know that, you know, hey, I'm trying to understand, you know, queer women's identity development and I am a lesbian, right? So it was important to me, you know, very opposed to this sort of standard scientific practice where you're supposed to be totally independent. I'm like, you know, that doesn't work for my community. And what's odd is that at that time, that was like a thing that I was like, I felt bad about, you know, I'm being too personable and relatable. And, what, and, and I said, but this is a marginalized population. I would need this if I was going to participate in a study. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to ignore that and do what I think is right. Now there's a whole field on like, you know, ethical community-based research that's like, you should be, you know, and I'm like, oh my God, I wish I'd, I wish I'd had those citations like 20 years ago. They really could have helped because I was like, doesn't anybody else like want to just be a nice person? Is that okay? You're like, no, the data. So I had different types of women. I had, uh, because my only criteria for being in the study was that you had ever had an attraction to a woman. Like, I, I don't care what your identity is, if this is irrelevant to you, um, and it wasn't quite like it is now. I think now if you like walked into a bar and said to all the women, who here has ever been attracted to women? I think pretty much everyone would raise their hands. Yeah. But that was a time where there was enough kind of heterosexual filtering that the only women who, you know, asked me to be in the study were women who they had enough of attractions to women right. that they were like, I would like to understand this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of them identified as heterosexual. Some of them didn't identify as anything but had predominantly heterosexual past. Some of them uh, identified as lesbian and some of them identified as bisexual. And over time, these groups kept changing, like the membership in each group was becoming just like a, like a, you know, like a tilt-a-whirl. I'm, you know, and so some of the first talks that I gave with this data, I would put like each year, like, okay, this was 1995, this is 1997, this is 2000, and here are the, here's the lesbians, and then we've got six going from here. We've got two bisexuals graduating to lesbian. Uh, <laughs> oh heterosexuals identified as bi, then went back to heterosexual two weeks later. And it's like, it was, it was just a maze. Interesting. That those categories themselves 
were not stable. There was the, the one group that was the most stable was that like, if you were someone whose identity never changed the whole time, like in the like 25 years of the study, there were some lesbians, like women who identified as lesbian in the beginning, mm-hmm. never identified as bisexual. You know, like there was a core group of stable lesbians that stayed lesbian identified the whole time, but pretty much, and they were only 20% of the sample, right? Everybody else just all over the map and more people, um, more people ended up with an unlabeled identity than gave up an unlabeled identity because up until this time, people said, oh, if you're unlabeled, that must mean you're like in transition. And it was exactly the opposite. Like a lot of women ended up leaving lesbian or bisexual or even heterosexual labels saying, and then, and their answer would be, I just don't even believe that I'm I'm not sure that even matters or I don't even know. And so I know I'm not heterosexual, but that's about all I know. Mm -hmm. And so there's no word for that. And this was also before queer was in more popular usage. Mm -hmm. You know, that has been more recent, but it's interesting that even some of the heterosexual women uh, would have some of the kind of early memories of same-sex attractions that most of us think, oh, that would be like a lesbian. Like, they're, none of the old models, like, it's really early if you're like a bull dagger dyke. Like, you know, we have these weird things, like, they're the ones who show up at age five, but the femme bisexuals come out in college. Like, we still have these tropes, and it's for good reason. There are plenty of salient observable examples of people who fit that trajectory. It's just that they aren't nearly as prototypical as we have thought. Like maybe we thought they were more common just because they, they fit a lot of our archetypes and they make sense. Like, oh, early means like more butch. For, I mean, like why would that even be? But people were like, it must be something hormonal. None of these theories have any validity, but they stick in our minds because they make sense. Oh, the femi bisexual, it's because she's really heterosexual and she's probably just trying it out. So she's more likely to end up heterosexual, but her bulldogger girlfriend would never change. And like what I'm here to tell you is those are beautiful stories and they are also stories. They are not representative of, you know, the true diversity that's out there. And I think it's also possible that, you know, we're seeing right now just more people having a more diverse array of language Mm -hmm. to describe some of these complicated experiences. You know, like one of the things that, you know, I I feel really, really good about in the book is talking about that phenomenon of falling in love with the person and not the gender. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, prior to my book coming out, you know, that, that was a phrase that women would sort of stumble through in the interviews and they all thought that they were really unusual. And I was like, oh, my God, this is not unusual at all. Like, I hear it all the time. I hear it from men. I hear, And, you know, I'm like, this just, like, this needs to be an available story for people. Right. You know? But see, I love that idea. Like, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I am gay. Maybe I'm not. We'll see where I like, where I am in the future. But to me, I've never related to that, which, I mean, that also I feel like doesn't really sound good when you say it out loud. Well, the point is we need to be able to say there's about as many different ways to do this and feel this as there are us. 
And the only problem is when we say that's a better story or that's a better explanation or that sounds good or that sounds bad. We just need to be able to say we're all here together for some reason. We have something in common. Mm -hmm. That does not mean we have everything in common. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that my experience, you know, and and I, I see this a lot, probably the most, with um, non-binary folks and trans folks and bisexuals that I feel very strongly that their attractions are gendered and those who don't because and so in the case of bisexuals there I like some of the bisexual women I interviewed were like oh no I am so into gender I love femi girls and like and I love butch I like I love gender I just love both and then there'd be another who'd be like I don't even see it it is not a part of my sexuality. I think I just, gender wasn't even a category. And so you put them in the room together and the one that says, you know, gender's not a category. The other one is like, don't you like, like yuck my yum. Like I, I like those categories. I have no problem. I don't want to explode them. Right. And same thing on the gender diversity spectrum. There are trans people who are like, I don't even want to be trans. I want to switch so completely that my trans identity does not exist. And then there are some who are like, I am trying to deconstruct gender every single day. And if you are a trans person who's decided to go so gendered that you don't even want to be trans, you're just reifying gender. And people are like, oh no, what's right? And it's like, both and folks, those are all absolutely real and valid experiences. And neither one of them invalidates the other. And the only reason that these things turn kind of fraught is because marginalized communities often invest a lot of energy and emotion in having very, very shared experiences, right? You felt that way. So did I. We come together. Well, it becomes that safety net. And then when you're saying, oh, wait, no, this part's different, this part's different, all of a sudden that safety net maybe doesn't feel as safe. Because it's conditional. Yes. You get to have the safety of the community uh-huh. if you're the right type of queer. Right. Whereas what you know we ought to be doing is saying, we literally do not care whether you flew here on a horse or had your first kiss the other day or whatever. Welcome to the party. And to just be like, oh my God, how did you end up here? Well, I was married for 40 years. Oh my God, I was a gay kid. And it's not like one person is repressed and the other person is not. It's, wow, this is like let a thousand flowers bloom. And no one should feel that they don't have a right to join that conversation because they're not queer enough or they're not trans enough or somehow their story doesn't fit what now we have decided is normal. So I came out when I was in high school and I came out as bisexual, but I never truly felt bisexual. I just thought that people would be able to accept that easier than saying I'm gay or I'm a lesbian, which is almost very disrespectful to the bisexual community. And I think they get a bad rap. People assume like, oh, you just want your cake and you want to eat it too, which that's entirely, that's not correct. And it's, you know, it's true that a lot, and this was true for a lot of the women I interviewed, a lot of women said the same thing you said. It seemed like it would be easier on other people. Like, it's like, 
you know, I'm not all the way on the other side of the island. I'm at like the, I, I could turn around and go either way. Oh, I was on the island. And, and the thing that's interesting <laughs> is that it never seems like it, if anything, it can sometimes make it even harder for parents that are like, well, wait, what is that? And like, what does that mean? And it's like, wow, that didn't seem much easier, did it? You know, it just stays just as hard. And it's amazing how many decisions we make about what's going to make the people around us comfortable. And that's not safety either, right? And so it's like you make these trade-offs and maybe you think in your mind, oh, it'll make it easier and it'll like set up a good, and you're actually investing in losing trust. You're actually investing in a wall. They can't be trusted with the truth. So I'm going to tell them something I think is going to, is going to work. And so you're, in your attempt to connect and to keep that support, you actually are digging a little division. That's interesting because um, so in my family, three out of four of us are queer in some way, gay. And my brother, it was more obvious and everyone kind of knew. He, he verbalized some of his struggle a little bit more. When he came out, it was everyone was a lot more understanding. When I came out, I had dug myself into a hole. I married a man. I did everything that you know to hide any sign of that that I could. And I did exactly that. I made it harder for everyone to recognize, you know, this yeah. thing that I was trying to keep hidden. And so when I came out, it was not good. And, I, you know, being married with kids played a f- part in that too, not wanting to break up a family and things, but they just couldn't even accept the fact that I was because in their mind, I I had done such a good yeah. job of, you know, digging that, that they're like this persona that they wanted true. me yeah. to be. Masking. Yeah. Masking and making it, making myself be what they wanted that it was, you know, so shocking and so surprising, even though there were signs, but I did such a good job. Of well, people are very, that. very good at blocking out access to information that is threatening. Mm-hmm. And studies show that even in like couples, couples become less good at reading their partner's emotions for emotions that they view as threatening to the relationship. Our brain's like, don't want to see, don't want to see, don't want to see, don't want to see, don't want to see. Like, nope, 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 that's hurtful. And so something that you would be like, that is an obvious sign. No, 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 no. You know, the walls are up. And it's just amazing what people will not see. And you can kind of, we're all, we all have those blinders. And so, you know, I think we should believe that when our, when our family members are like, I'm telling you, I had no idea. Like people build defenses in their perceptions and they don't want to see things. And sometimes the only way to get them over that is to look them in the eye and say, no, this is, this is actually this is now is what is ha- what is happening. Yeah. Well, even in perception of self, like because I think about the blinders I had to like my own experiences. Like when I started dating a woman for the first time, I didn't say I'm gay. I just said I'm dating a woman. I didn't feel comfortable using the verbiage. And even once she and I were dating, it's a really complex dynamic that 
touched into some polyamory because of just complicated entanglements there. And I ended up having sex with men in there because I was like, well, maybe I could make this work. Maybe this is a thing. I don't know. And it was like this flailing around trying to figure out like, what am I? What do I want? Who am I? What is intense friendship versus like sexual attraction? And like, how do I make any sense of this? Mm -hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Even when I first met Liana, which wasn't super it wasn't long that long ago, ago, yeah, she did not want to define herself in any way, mm-hmm. and I I remember thinking like, oh okay, well, there's fine. so much attached to that that I yeah. didn't realize what came with accepting your sexuality meant so much more than just like recognizing the label. Yeah. It was like social, but we're I think we can be so. You know, we can be judgmental and be like, well, you're not really out unless you're willing to call yourself something. And, you know, I just, I I feel like we don't make enough space Mm -hmm. for people to say, just, you know, in the morass. And we're like, oh, I guess you still need to work through some things. Mm-hmm. But the we truth do. Is we that assume everybody that. is working through Ugh, things yeah, every true. freaking day. Mm-hmm. And I wish we would just be like, hey, wherever you are, Today, mm-hmm. unlabeled, labeled, this, that. I don't care. Yeah. It's great to see you. How how you doing? How's it going? I right? like that. Yeah. Those are the questions that we really want. How are you feeling? What do you need? How can I help you? Not like, have you called it a relationship yet? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Have you told anyone? It's like the way to be supportive is to say, whatever version of yourself you are right now, I'm I'm down with for that. Like mm-hmm. that is great. I love every part of you that you're gonna show me. What is it today? Mm-hmm. And go ahead and keep changing. I really do think that that is what all people do. And there are phases of everyone's life where they go through more rapid shifts mm-hmm. than others. And, and it's, you know, thank goodness it's punctuated because we can never survive rapid change. But one of the things that I think is also difficult is that a two-year period in one person's coming out journey may have nothing in common with the, with the two years for a person over there. They might have gone through something in one week that was more, right? So yeah. time scale is all off. Right. And so when people say like, oh my God, it's changing so often, I'm like, what, what are we talking about? Seconds, minutes, light years? You know, how long is sexuality supposed to take to like reveal itself to us? We don't know. So we can be really impatient with ourselves and be like, well, you know, yesterday you said this and today you feel something different. It's like, what amount is too long or too short to have a feeling and express it? You know, you just have to try to be transparent with yourself. And one of the the commitments I made to myself at some point with wrestling, like what things do you share and what things do you not? And are you lying to yourself if you don't tell, you know, some of the people that you're close with, you know, just what you're struggling with and, you know, out of shame or whatever, Mm -hmm. like nobody knows how, you know, fucked up you are, that it is pretty safe, I think, to lie to other people strategically to keep yourself safe as long as you are not lying to yourself, that if you can have a pretty rigid commitment to be able to be like, I know what you're doing, I know, then it's like, all right. If that is a trade-off that you need right now, mm-hmm. you know, go ahead and tell them that you've got it all figured out. Go ahead and tell this person that you're bisexual. If it's going to make you safe in this moment, go ahead and do it. 
and we'll and we can tolerate that discrepancy. And I think where we get bound up is we're like, well, was I not being honest with myself or what? And it's like, your your brain and your body are trying to be authentic and be safe at the same time. And when they cannot coincide, safety's always going to win. That's so interesting. That reminds me. So I was married to a man. And when I did come out, people said to me, well, you should have been honest with him. You should have told him so that he knew what he was getting into. And I said, well, I wasn't honest with myself. And I actually had someone reach out. It was actually my um, my ex-husband's cousin reached out and she's like, you're using the word honest and you're and it's sounding like you are saying like you lied to yourself, you lied to him. And she's like, I don't think that you even were willing to recognize it. So yeah. you completely disassociated. Yep. You didn't lie. Yep. You weren't dishonest. You dissociated. And I, when she said that, I was like, that is what I did. And I didn't lie. I wasn't trying to deceive that. anyone. You know, and I've, I've, there's a, there's a sort of growing bunch of folks talking about this in the therapeutic community that focuses on Mormon women's sexuality, that disassociation from sexuality is so fostered uh, in the LDS culture through the prohibitions on masturbation that it's like there's a lot of religious groups that don't like masturbation, but there's a level of scrutiny and shaming from an early age that is really strong. And what that produces is dissociation, that you have so cut off desire that and 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 it doesn't just manifest in a lot of people not like realizing they're gay. It's like a lot of people who like don't even know if they're attracted to the person they married because they literally have so much difficulty getting their sexuality integrated back into them their mind because they've spent you know twenty years don't 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 don't. You can't cut that cord and then stitch it back together again. So it can take a long time for people's actual feelings about anything to rise to the threshold of conscious awareness because you have cut that cord. Wow. So (laughs) I, that is me for sure. Um, I just wanted to say something. So, uh, I actually was married to a man as well. I love that I just said I was never bisexual. I'm definitely not bisexual, and I'm lesbian 100%. Uh, I, my first female like adult relationship was extremely toxic. It was very abusive. Um, I actually moved out of state um, for this woman. She was seven years older than me. I was about to say, was she older? Because- Much older. So I moved there when I was 19, and we dated for two and a half years. And in that time, I kind of separated from my family. They were disapproving of my relationship. Mm -hmm. So when that ended, I actually started dating a man. I didn't want anything to do with the gay community. I said, if that's what being gay is, I don't want to be gay. Mm -hmm. And I knew from a very young age I wanted to have kids. I wanted to be a mom. And I didn't see how that would fit in with the lifestyle I was living. So I actually ended up marrying one of my best guy friends, Um, but was completely open and honest with him, let him know that I, like, have always been attracted to women, have primarily dated women, and to him, he, like, loved me enough to, like, kind of go on that journey with me, 
And we actually are still great friends today. I have two kids with him. And actually, my wife and I, Charles C., they get along great. Yeah, I love him. He's great. But I thought, you know, we have such a great friendship. I do love him. Like, that'll be enough. Like, we have a great time together. And then, you know, as time goes on, you realize, okay, you can love them. But if you're not in love with them, that's not going to sustain a marriage or a relationship. You know, that, you know, I, I teach a big undergraduate course at the U on love and relationships. And I teach a lot of those sort of biology of bonding. And, you know, when we think about kind of sexual and romantic love, we kind of glom them, you know, all together. And this fantasy is that you marry the person who is your best friend and you want to have sex with them. Like, you know, they're everything. And that is just not really what humans evolved to do, is to put all their eggs in one basket. Human societies were kind of polyamorous, like people had sex and they had friends and everyone cared for the kids together. And it it was not this heterosexual, you know, fantasy that, that we, our culture seems to have. And one of the things that, that we have to sort of realize is that the feelings of love and attachment and bonding that you can feel for someone that you're not attracted to, like your husband, that like the fact that you aren't as sexually attracted to them doesn't make the bonding less legitimate and doesn't make it like a mistake. It's like we had this and this was great. It so happens that we are not people who can have that and not also have the other thing. We're just not. Some people are. We are not. And that choice to say, I really do want that part, and so I can't have it with you, and so goodbye. We make it as if once you make that choice, you are like you have to denigrate them or like that was a past and that was not a part of me. And it's like, no. Attachment, caregiving, bonding, those are the oldest systems in our brains. Those relations, you know, successfully having a loving, responsive, emotional give and take with another person is so freaking difficult that whenever we manage it for any period of time, we should be, you know, throwing a party. You know, I was actually joking. I'm like, people should have like divorce and breakup parties and basically say, you know, oh my God, I have my life and you have your life. And we intersected. Mm -hmm. We were part of each other's lives for a while. And so this is a goodbye party. You know, I wish you the best. Our goal should be to want to have a party saying, this one went great, bye, you know, instead of saying it's a failure. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that you had a loving relationship and children made you the kind of person that could go on and have the rest of your life. Like, whatever nurturance you received is just as important to you being out now. It's like we need to stop looking at those passes like the mistake or the before, mm-hmm. you know, it was just the launching pad. That's interesting. I love that because I do think, you know, sometimes I've I've had a hard time with my Mormon upbringing because I do feel like it may it forced me to dissociate. It forced me to not allow you know myself to even go there. But looking back, it got me that. Marrying my ex-husband and having my kids 
it got me to where I am today. And it put me in a spot where I could relate to Mm -hmm. my wife, Brianna. And we related on a lot of levels because of those experiences. And sometimes I can feel bad for myself that I, you know, wasn't able to have the romantic relationship in high school that, you know, everyone dreams about. And I missed out on, you know, my college days of, you know, all of that. But if, you know, if I sit back and remember, you know, that actually all of this stuff got me to where I am. And I like where I am. They were not wasted years. They're not wasted years. You know, they were, if safety is necessary for us to be able to give voice to desire, Mm -hmm. right? You know, we have our desire. What we have no control over is how much safety we have available to us. And remember, if it's safety versus authenticity, safety's going to win every time. So it's only when you reach some threshold where you have enough, then you can listen. But for some individuals, they will not be that safe because of their job or their history or whatever until they're 40. And others reach that level of safety earlier. And we just have no control over that. What This is the other thing that I feel like I wish more members of, of our community would tell one another and tell each other about, you know, previous marriages, previous mistakes. Oh, no. Then you, you know, you're the kids and they're going to be affected. If, if you had only figured it out earlier, you would have saved us all this worry. There's a lot of shame that, you know, people get. And, you know, here's where I put on my (laughs) evolutionary psychologist hat and I say, you know, your brain's number one priority in driving your behavior is to keep you safe, is to keep you safe. And therefore, whatever decision your nervous system makes in a particular environment to, to keep you safe is the right decision. You know, as far as we're concerned, if your if your brain's priority is do what you need to do to get to get safe, to make sure that nothing can happen to you. And so whatever step you have ever made in your life was not a could not have been a wrong decision. If it were, you'd be dead. By the very virtue of you being here, every single hard choice you made was right. Because your brain will always seek safety over pride, over anything. Safety comes first. It's a neurological priority. So we don't need to blame ourselves for having taken too long or having done this. They were all the best decision. Because your brain knows what the most important thing is. It's safety. And if we know that, then maybe we can give ourselves a break about the trade-offs we make to stay safe when something that did seem safe changes, you know? And it's like, I thought, you know, that we have to stay responsive and we have to adjust. And so whatever adjustment we need to make to stay safe ourselves Mm -hmm. is the right decision. And our brain will tell us that. Your brain hates to be afraid. Yeah, that's that's super interesting because I do feel like for the majority of my life, I played it safe 
with everything. Every, you know, I did what every, what I, like you said earlier, I took in information from everyone and, and, and how I'm supposed to be. And I played it safe with everything. And now trying to be authentic, I've realized how some of those relationships weren't truly safe. I just made them safe because I made myself what they wanted me to be. And your brain will do whatever it takes. Yes. And, and it's interesting because that when you are trying to be more your authentic self, you are more vulnerable. You aren't as safe anymore. And it's scary. Terrifying. It's terrifying. But it's so rewarding at the same time. It's like a weird dynamic. But you still have those moments where you want to cling to that safety again or find some sort of mm-hmm. safety. And it, it, I don't know, it's interesting. I like the, you know, kind of how you talked about safety versus authenticity and how, how can we make it both? Yeah. Especially in our community. Yeah. Like you said, we should be able to have both in our community. So my relationship that I came out of, it's been a few months now, but something you said resonated with me because it was very unsafe in a lot of ways. It was really traumatic in a lot of ways. It's a whole conversation for another time. But one thing I can recognize is that that is the one space where I did feel safe voicing this part of myself Mm. where I had never felt that before. And that can often lead you perhaps to stay in a situation you shouldn't stay in because, oh my God, this may be my only chance to feel safe about that. So I'll sacrifice my safety in this other way to hold on to that, you know? But whatever trade-off your brain made, it was doing its best. Mm -hmm. And we don't have to be like, I should have. Your brain was at optimal functioning. Whatever you ended up doing, that's what your brain said. I inflicted this. I could face this. I could run away. I could do this. I say stay and fake it, right? (laughs) Your brain is just saying optimize, optimize, optimize. Number one priority is don't get in trouble. Yeah. Well, to that point though, like there have been a lot of emotions around parsing through that particular relationship dynamic, but like I can have gratitude. Like you were saying, it's messy. It's like a messy mix, like gumbo pot of experience. Mm -hmm. But I can have gratitude for the fact that regardless of all the other traumas that happened, I was at least made to feel safe Mm -hmm. to express that part of self. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can't do some cost-benefit analysis. Mm -hmm. You know, was it worth it? People make a million safety trade-offs every single day. And I think that because we live in a modern era where we can take a lot of safety for granted, Mm -hmm. um, we just need to remember that our gut base level nervous nervous system is geared toward fear (laughs) just all the time that, you know, we used to think, oh, you're calm. And then a stressor comes. And there's been this emerging body of research called the guts theory, the generalized unsafety theory of stress that says, it's not that we're all calm and then a stressor comes and we're like, oh, there's a tiger, let's run. We come out of the womb screaming, right? Waiting for comfort. And our brains are set to a default of 
danger because in the period during which we evolved, that was pretty true, mm -hmm. you know? And so we evolved to just be anxious until somebody tells us we're okay. So we don't start calm, you know, so social relationships and social connection, they're not like fun add-ons to your life. Like they are essential. We have a social nervous system. We need to know that there are some people to whom we belong for no reason other than that we exist, you know, mm -hmm. hopefully with your family of origin, although often not, yeah. you know, hopefully with your partner, right? We need someone mm -hmm. around us to say, you know, no matter what, no matter what. And that's not just like an ex that that's food for the brain. We need it in the same way that your body needs food. And that's why we sometimes make crazy trade-offs to get it. Because starving people, if you're starving for safety, any port in a storm. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what we, I feel like, whenever we find ourselves, you know, judging one another's, you know, status in the community, it's like just how can we make each other feel safe and unconditionally included, you know? And, and I, I like now I'm like, it is, it's like a brain intervention, mm -hmm. not offering safety within your community. That's, you're actually harming people's brains. That, that, well, that's how much our brains need safety. That really makes sense to me, um, and I actually never thought of it this way until, you know, this conversation, but when I married my ex-husband, he was the safest person that mm -hmm. I knew at that point, and I never questioned whether he loved me. I just knew, and That's he always it. had very The moment good, you have to ask the question, I never had the safety to. is gone. But safety I felt, is in not even having to ask. But I felt guilty because I know I didn't reciprocate it in the same way. But coming, you know, from where I was, something that was so unsafe, so uncertain, like I, I fully, I was okay with that. I was like, this trade-off is fine. Like at least I'm not in that situation and I don't have to question where I stand. And I, I don't know. That's kind of crazy though to hear and, you, you know, explain it that way. I've heard a lot of people talk about um, having marriages like that in which there, there is, you know, connection and the marriage is nurturant. And that almost makes some people feel like, oh, I feel even worse for not ending up with this person because they were so great. And it's like, maybe they're, maybe your whole purpose of connecting in your two lives was that he happened to be really good at caring for you at a time you really needed that kind of care. And just what a wonderful thing in the universe that, he was really able to provide something you really needed for your own brain to just kind of recover and go forward. Mm -hmm. And so that's not like, oh, I feel guilty. It's like, how lucky mm -hmm. that we were able to have a positive effect on one another. But then I also had to kind of sit with it afterwards because in my mind, I was like, okay, we're still like going to be best friends and we're still going to have this great relationship. But like his point of view and the way he experienced our relationship was so much different than I did. Mm -hmm. He did have those romantic feelings, whereas mine was more like, I love the person you are and I love how great of a father you are. He had to kind of untangle like his emotions with our romantic relationship. Mm -hmm. Whereas I was like, okay, great. Now I can like still have you and have like a romantic yeah. relationship yeah. too. And he had a lot more baggage and... 
And it makes sense, you know, and I, I think we see that in other research on breakups, that the person who's already more done is usually the one to say, we can still be friends. And the other person is like, do you realize that I am really sad? Like, you don't seem that sad. And it's like, it's one person might be like, can we just switch to the friends part? And the other person needs to grieve a little more. And I think the biggest thing that you keep saying is we need to allow space for that. I mean, even with my ex, you know, it's been hard untangling. Mine's a little bit more recent. And sometimes our interactions aren't as positive as I want them to be. But I I recognize that I do have to give him space. You know, I need to give him that space and recognize that, you know, his journey is different than mine. And... There's no substitute for time. I think time helps because it will give him a chance to just feel like himself. You know, the when there's a breakup, you're like you start in the together state and you start to move toward the separate state. And when you're further along in the separate state, it's easier to handle little roller coasters of being friends again. But it's like give him more time to feel like he knows who he is now after the marriage, like knows who he is. And for the person who didn't, you know, that, that can be something where two people can have a really different trajectory Mm -hmm. air on the side by giving him more time and time does a lot just on its own. I love that though, with how you said that with everyone in the, in the queer community, every, you know, if we are, allow people to have their story, whether or not we want to put our story onto their story, that's irrelevant. It's their story. And I, you know, there are times where I want to put my story on his story, but my story isn't his story. And I have to give him space to have his story. And And there's no need, (laughs) there's no need for the two of you to agree on what that story is. And I think a lot of folks, a lot of queer folks who have left heterosexual marriages, some of the tension is in, even if they have a good post, you know, relationship, it's like, so what's the story that you tell when someone says, what was that like? And is the story, oh, I was always gay, but I was like, you might have the story that you tell and he might have a very different story. And does that matter? And I think, you know, for, and that's going to be different for different people. But I think for some folks, they really want to feel like, no, do we have the same version? That's been hard. Of for what me. happened? That's been really hard for me because I, you worry that you're getting painted in this light that you, you know, you know, isn't true yeah. to your story, yeah. but maybe to their story, it is true. And it's trying to recognize that, yeah, we aren't going to agree on that story and that's okay. And, you know, certain people are going to see me a certain way. Certain people are going to see him or other people a certain way. Yeah. And we have to learn to be okay with it. And it's so hard to do. Yeah. And you, you describe that so perfectly and yeah, it's like his story and your story don't have to match. Um, you just have to acknowledge that and, and what is the story about? The story is about feelings, you know, events that caused feelings, feelings of loss, feelings of 
betrayal, you know, and of you were experiencing different feelings from one another. And so, of course, the story around those feelings is different. You know, when one person, you know, was surprised, it's like there, of course, it feels different, so the story's going to be different. And it's like you just have to say, even if they are making me a villain in their mind, there is nothing I can do to disabuse them of that thought because it's not a thought. It's a feeling. It's, you know, fear. And, you know, so don't waste time saying, no, 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 but don't you understand that what was really going... It's like you have to just be like, that is not my story, and it is serving a purpose for him. Okay, he just may need that right now. Yeah, I think that's one of the big reasons we wanted to start this podcast was this whole idea of the importance of narrative mm-hmm. and telling story. Mm-hmm. Not just, I mean, the importance for us to own our own stories because of what that does for creating identity and co-creating, but then also allowing for other perspectives because I know I'm the villain in some people's story, you know, and creating a space where we can have all of these come together and like a platform for people to speak truth so that I know I was looking for stories that I felt like I could see myself in when I was navigating, which is why I came across your book when I started this whole journey. Cause I was like, is there anyone else out there who like feels the way that I do about this? And so story has been a huge lifeline for me. And the, and the, the other thing about story that I think cannot be said enough is to just have people feel in there, really believe that they are the main character in their story, that they're not a side character to another person's life. They are not a background character that is figuring out what's my, what are my lines in this scene. You are the main character of your life. Whatever you are feeling, ipso facto, it is correct, it is right. Like You don't have to live up to anything because that would mean that they it was their story. Oh my God, it's not their story. Oops, I got that messed up. Why do you care what it? Oh my God, you don't write it either. Oh my God, it's mine. And so for people to just be like, whatever it is, you know, today, right now, the movie of my life today is me talking to you. Your stories, how you want to perceive me or view me, you that's great. That's for your movie. Have a great movie. I'll be a side character in your movie, like, you know, I disapprove of that lesbian. Oh, I get to be the lesbian you disapprove of. How fun. But that's his movie. Yeah. I'm going to use this on the kids, I think. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, but I am the main character. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, you're, you're messing up the plot. And if people just accept that, oh, therefore, no one can shame me. I'm not doing anything wrong. Your, your version of me doesn't matter because you're just talking about your movie. Mm-hmm. You're not in my movie. I love that. I love that because I do feel like, I mean, I didn't come out until I was 35. I 100% was a character in everyone else's story. Which we've talked about that. Yeah. I mean, marriages. even playing parts, you know, even going through motions with men and you know all you feel of like that you're watching it I person. felt like I was watching it yeah and I yeah. did not live my story and once I did and that it, also is related to the dissociation yes right because you're not even in there yes I I completely and I it's it's been scary 
to live my real story, my authentic story, but it's been so freeing. My life's so much harder, mm. but it's so much better. So I feel so much more in a weird way, it's security and freedom. Now that I don't have this secret that I feel like I'm holding in yeah. or playing a part in someone else's well, I mean, narrative you're, of you're, me. Like when people are hypervigilant, when they're unsafe, like there's only so many things you can feel or do at all. Your creativity shuts down. Your sort of self-analysis shuts down because again, your brain will always put safety first. So it's like only once you have a certain level of safety can your brain say, okay, now that we have some resources, what do you think you ought to do about it? Like a, a scared brain thinks only of now. See? So Charles and I have talked about that before and we've kind of agreed that like any kind of like physical intimacy with a man or anything like romantic you're always like a step ahead, like, oh, okay, I'm going to do this next. But it never felt like genuine. It never felt like you were in the moment. You felt like, okay, it was always very like meticulous and very planned out. What's next? This is what I should do. like formula? Having a script, right? To go to your movie And you forget about yourself. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like not realizing that if at that moment in the middle of some, you know, sort of thing, you stopped and said, wait a second, wait a second, Joe, I do not want to have sex with you. I'm going to get out of here and get in a cab and go home. And a part of you is like, you cannot do that. What are you thinking? Well, that's rude. You that's cannot not, do yeah. that. Mm-hmm. And all you have to remind yourself, I would hope, is, oh, wait a second, that's a different movie. That's not my movie. Like, if I decide to get up and get in a cab, that's that's my movie. So I have to do that. I have to do what I want because it's my freaking movie. I'm sorry. You must be getting confused between my movie and your movie. And to just remind yourself that if you, like, are having a strong impulse to do something, that, you know, this your, it's your movie. So in order to live with that, you have to find a way to turn off the judgment of others and to remind yourself, you know, and one of the ways I think it can be reassuring is to remember how little, little a role you probably play in their movie. Yeah. Right. So if you think about, you know, that relationship mm-hmm. in the movie of his life, there's going to be everything that happened before he met you. Then there's going to be a small part where he knew you. And then there's going to be another 60 years, right? Mm-hmm. You're not a main character. That's and yeah, so whatever he like thinks that. about you, mm-hmm. who the freaking cares? It's good for his plot line. Yeah, but it has no relationship to you at all. Yeah, I it's think like have fun. That's so awesome. Yeah. I, I like putting it that way, mm-hmm. and re- realizing we have to be okay with people having their movie, and we're gonna play a part in their movie that's different from ours. Yeah. You're like, maybe I needed to be the angry betrayer. Yeah. <laughs> maybe you needed an angry betrayer. Okay. And you in know, some ways it's me. kind of cool. That's and an kind interesting of fun. It's you know, yeah, it's different and And you don't have to and... think for a second that it has anything to do with you. Right. Which is so hard to do though. But I do like this idea because I think if you can start to think more like that, it does help you recognize Okay, this is an I'm I'm making a big deal about what this person thinks, mm-hmm. 
and this is their storyline yeah. of me, and yeah. I can't change it. And, and I'm not. And, and it's I probably really it. small. Like yeah, and it's probably you know small. one of the things we have to realize is other people don't spend as much time hating us and as being mad think. at us as we think. Yeah. You know, we spend more time thinking about whether other people are mad at us mm-hmm. than anybody ever you know spends. And so it's so clear that we are our own worst enemies of anticipating. Oh, they're, oh, they're going to say this to me. They're going to be angry at me. I can't be honest about it. We spend more time projecting our pain into the future than our pain actually takes in the moment. Or even like, you know, will people think these shoes are weird? Like Mm -hmm. no one's really worried about your shoes because they're thinking about their own. Yeah. Like like (laughs) I sometimes will just laugh at myself because I will have spent some time like getting dressed for a party and then I'll be, you know, and I'm like, oh, should I wear these earrings or that? And then I'll come home and I'll be like, can I remember anything about any of the earrings or outfits I've seen tonight? No, nothing, nothing, right? Who was I dressing for? I was dressing for me. And nobody else cares. And so if you are just dressing for you, then you might as well wear whatever the hell you want. We spend so much time shaming ourselves, you know? And it's just amazing the degree to which we can be our own policers in that way yeah I love that though I I do think like we I I mean even to this day I still do it when I cut my hair myself you know people didn't love that I cut my hair and it was you know finding that space well I like it yeah you know and I I'm the main character and I get to choose if my hair's short or long like I am the designer yeah you understand to do that yeah you didn't this do you want a different haircut you're gonna have to get one you can do whatever you want with your character yeah okay because that's fine Mm -hmm. but it is amazing that we internalize that sort of watchful judgmental is that too much is it you know am I too much are you too oversensitive what's the right amount of sensitive to be what's the right amount of angry to be Mm -hmm. and we don't ever say to ourselves like stop questioning whatever you are feeling because this is your movie it's mm-hmm. it's all great mm-hmm. you know you get to choose what you want to do about it but whatever whatever you're feeling yeah. all good and i like how you said you know it's how you're feeling now mm-hmm. versus how you felt in the past how you f- are, are going to feel in the yeah. future a lot of times we live in the past or the future we need to focus on how we feel now well, and what's, what's going to feel the Power of Now. It's my mm. favorite book. Yeah. Um, but yeah, living in the moment and being like our true authentic self, playing our main character in our movie. And being, now, being able to say to ourselves, if me right now is super different in 10 minutes, that's there's, okay. nothing, there's nothing weird about that. That yeah, is just I love oh, I've that. said so many times that if like 18-year-old me met 32-year-old me, I don't think I'd recognize her oh, at I all. Know. I mean... <laughs> I, like, when I try to, like, put myself back, you know, into, like, the last relationship I had before I came out, I'm like, who was that person? I literally do not recognize your brain's operational, like, what, who? It's like I can barely even imagine, and it just shows that at different points in time, 
we have different access to our own thoughts, our own memories, our own feelings. Mm -hmm. There are some things that you tap into, and so it's not that you have changed. It's almost like there are certain rooms in your house that you just stop turning the lights on, and they are there. You just were not interested in those rooms. Mm -hmm. And so you can suddenly be like, oh, whatever happened to the, whoa, right? And that is just, that's just how humans are. And so we need to sort of forgive ourselves and say, you know, growth isn't always linear. Mm -hmm. You know, you might go, um, you know, up and down. And, and I know a lot of queer people who judge themselves harshly because they came out while they were in a psychiatric facility you know, they came out after a suicidal episode. And so is this thing of like, oh my God, am I just proving that like, you know, it's something about mental illness that it's not that I'm gay, it's that I'm screwed up and that we all have to be super healthy, you know, when we come out and not give anybody a bad impression. And so that's the mentality that makes people feel ashamed if if their identity and their self-concept is really fluctuating like that is not okay you know and we then we just do kind of more damage and the truth is that development is really unpredictable and we just need to give each other some grace yeah i love that um we're at about two hours so just to make sure we save this file <laughs> I think we'll wrap it right, up I have like a learned like panic response to oh, no. <laughs> but this was amazing thank you so much we'd love to have you back to talk about some of these so other topics this was like one of the most fun like rich conversations I've had in a while like you guys yeah. thank I loved you. it yeah I, mean, I, I feel like, I, feel like I want you to stay yeah, yeah, I feel like you helped me like tap into the, some of these I know things I'm like, like I feel oh, like yeah. I just had a moment I'm gonna need to go process some of this later <laughs> I really did like get a little too I know <laughs> We do have a couple questions, though, that we like to ask everyone that comes on our podcast. Um, Liana, we'll go ahead and ask So I guess one of them that we just kind of are always tossing out is if you had advice and you were talking to you at 18, what would you tell you at 18, knowing the journey you were about to embark on to where you're sitting now? What kind of advice would you offer yourself? I think it would be exactly that – this is your, your life. No, you, yes, you. No, whatever, whatever you want. Whatever. <laughs> no, it doesn't matter. What, what, what everything? Yeah, yeah. Yes to that and yes to everything. Mm-hmm. I was so um, caught in what are the expectations? Mm-hmm. What, what can I do to be most pleasing to as many possible people I was in the pleasing Olympics. It's like, you I know, get that. it's not enough to please you. I'm going to do you and you, and I'm going to fit you in. <laughs> I get that on a soul level. Yeah. And there's so many things I feel like can trace back to like, wouldn't it be great if you had gotten rid of that like a little earlier than you did? So, and I, and I feel like that is something that a lot of people struggle with yeah. um, is is actually thinking that your own authenticity is actually enough. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't even believe it. Yeah. yeah we, don't. we have to talk ourselves into it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's the human experience at large, but in particular to our conversation and our audience, definitely within the queer community. Yeah. So... 
Thank you so much. We Thank are you. looking forward to talking again soon. And uh, that'll wrap it up for this episode of Les Unpack That. The Les Unpack That podcast is an ally and advocate for the LGBTQ community and is devoted to giving a voice and creating a safe space for individuals and families of the LGBTQ community. If you or someone you know is having thoughts of suicide or self-harm, please seek help by calling the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or by calling 911. If you are under the age of 24 and need crisis intervention or suicide prevention, please call the 24-7 Trevor Project Hotline at 1-866-488-7386. We'd love to hear your questions, stories, and ideas for episode topics. If you'd like to get a hold of the Les Unpack That podcast, please email us at lesunpackthatpodcast at gmail.com. That's les, L-E-Z, unpackthatpodcast at gmail.com. The Les Unpack That podcast is produced by Charles C. Trabert, Brianna Marganti, and Liana Manabog. The Les Unpack That theme song was written and recorded by Matthew Davies. Mixing and editing was done by Matthew Davies. (laughs) ¶¶